Welcome to the Ewok Podcast, the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church with Robbie Locke. We're glad you're here, and we hope that this podcast is a blessing to your life and helps you walk closer to God. Our goal is to help you draw close to God and understand Scripture better in its entirety. Well, without further ado, here's Robbie. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 John in chapter 3. In our study of 1 John chapter 3, we have learned that the Apostle John has established two clear evidences of being a true child of God. We see both of these mentioned in verse 10, and I want to begin reading that verse. And then verses 11 to 18 expound the second evidence of salvation. Notice in verse 10 it says, 1 John 3 and verse 10, In this the children of God... And the children of the devil are manifest. In other words, if you want to know the difference between a true Christian who is a child of God and a non-Christian who the Bible describes as children of the devil, here are the two evidences of a true child of God. It says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Stating it positively, those who practice righteousness are of God, and those who love their brethren, their spiritual brethren, are children of God. So these are the two evidences that he mentions. He talks about the practice of righteousness as a lifestyle. Not that we are perfect, but that we make every effort under the leadership and empowering of the Holy Spirit to live out the Word of God in our lives. We live in obedience to God. And that is one of the evidences that we're children of God. And then he says, we practice love toward our brethren in Christ. Look around for just a moment. Look around for just a moment. Isn't this a gorgeous looking bunch we've got (laughs) gathered in here this morning? By the way, Linda Levitt is here. She had to come home from Florida for a a friend's funeral. She's with us this morning. We're very happy. What she doesn't know is we're going to hogtie her after church and not let her go back home. I don't think Cecil will be too happy about that, but that's okay. He's a long ways away. He can't do a single thing. No, sister, we're very glad that you're here. God bless you. Do we, as we look around at one another and we see our brothers and our sisters and the Lord Jesus Christ, do we truly love one another? It's obvious that we need to. We are supposed to. The question is, do we? And in loving one another, is it just love that is in sentiment? Love that is in words only? Or is it love that manifests itself in deeds as well? For the scripture makes it very clear. The love that counts is not love that is just verbally expressed. It is love that is very specifically manifested through good works. I've often used the illustration. Most women have a honeydew list for their hubby. Certain little jobs they want them to do and so on, and they'll give them their honeydew list. Now, if he looked at her and said, Oh, honey, I love you, but I'm not going to do a single thing on your list. Do you think she'd believe him? 
Well, I want to suggest to you that, well, she, I mean, she might have some sense he loves her, but I want to tell you something. She'll be a whole lot more convinced if you pick up the honeydew list and get at the business, right? Ladies, you like your men when they do those things, right? Yes? No? Okay, men, you're all off the hook. The ladies don't seem to care one way or the other, so I think you do. But, but do you understand my point here? When we look at one another, do we say, oh, yeah, we see each other on Sunday, and I love my brethren, and oh, yeah, till next Sunday. But are we involved in one another's lives? Are we manifesting practical love one to another? Because that is what the Bible says will happen when we are true Christians. We won't just love in word. We will love in deed. And so we want to talk about that in basically the second half of chapter 3 of John. Verses 11 down to 18 talks specifically to this theme and then moves on to the idea of following the commandments of God but again following the commandments by manifesting love to one another. So really the rest of this chapter undergirds this teaching that a true Christian will love his brethren not just in word but also in deed. Let's just bow for prayer and ask God to speak to us this morning. Our God and our Father, we need you so desperately. I need you so desperately. Lord, I do not want to open my mouth and have the words that come out be simply the thoughts of my mind and my heart. I want what I say today to reflect what is the true word of God as it's found here in the Holy Scriptures because the only authority that counts is the word of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you will speak to us today and that as we receive this teaching, we will do so not as from men, but as directly from you, for it is here in the scriptures that we will find out what you have to say. Minister to us now, Lord, and we'll thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Apostle John picks up this theme of practical love to the brethren here in verse 11. I want you to notice, first of all, and if you have your bulletins, you can follow along and uh, see the notes, and that will help you. It'll give you some idea when you're going to get lunch today, you know, as we make progress down through the notes. The first thing I want you to see is love, which is the message of Christ. Love, which is the message of Christ. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, the message is that we should love one another. Who gave us that message? Well, initially, it came from the Lord Jesus. When he's talking about in the beginning, he's talking about in the beginning of their ministry together when Jesus began teaching his apostles and teaching even the multitudes, he made it very clear that we need to love one another. But when he began... He was talking about loving one another as we love ourselves, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. But when we come to 1 John, he's now talking about a new message of love. And the reason that it's new is not because loving is different, but the example we are to follow is different. Instead of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, we are to love one another in the body of Christ, even as Jesus himself loved us. Now here's the difference. You may love yourself 
and we all do, right? We take care of ourselves, we bathe our bodies, we feed our bodies, we rest our bodies, we work and exercise our bodies, we do all of those things because we care about ourselves and we want our health to be good, we want to live as long as we can, we want to be with our families, all of that is a part of life. So we love ourselves and we take care of ourselves. So he's saying, even as you take care of yourself, take care of others. But now Jesus says, I want you to take care of one another the way I've taken care of you. I want you to love one another the way I've loved you. And the difference is, is that Jesus' example is a perfect example. And there's not a one of us that can possibly live up to the ideal of the perfect sinless Savior in his love for his own. But he said, that is your standard. That is what you are to strive for. And we're going to see specifically how that manifests itself in just a few moments. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Look at me, brethren. Do you want the people you know, to know that you're a Christian? Do you want your family and your neighbors and your friends and your co-workers to know that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? He says one of the ways they will know this is true is if you love other people who profess to love him. And so this is very important. John 15, 12, he says, this is my commandment. This is not an option. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now this subject of love has come up once before in 1 John, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and we talked about it then. We're talking about it in chapter 3. It comes up again in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. We are going to talk about this very subject again with 14 more verses on the same subject. And then when you get to chapter 5, he starts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, with talking about loving one another. Can you kind of get the picture? This is an important theme for the Apostle John. He says, if you want the world to know you're a true Christian, love those who love Christ. But what made it new was that we follow the example of Jesus. Jesus began to teach this message, but he taught it to his apostles who then continued teaching, and that teaching has come down to us today. So, love is the message of Christ, to love one another as Christ has loved us. Notice the second thing here. Love results in hatred by the world. Love results in hatred by the world. Verses 12 and 13. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Now Jesus gives an illustration in the opposite of what he wants practice. He gives the example of Cain, who killed his brother Abel. The illustration is of two brothers who should have loved one another. This murder should never have taken place. The problem in this case is that one of the brothers was of the world, 
He was evil. He was of the evil, wicked one, of the devil, the Bible says. And the other was of God because he was righteous. There again is that first qualification or evidence of true salvation is being a righteous person who practices righteousness. And he says that Abel was a man like that. He was a righteous man. So a couple of things to notice. First of all, Cain, his father was the wicked one or the evil one, the devil. One of the things about the Apostle John is that he doesn't use words that are sweet to the palate. He speaks straight from the shoulder. Now, I actually appreciate someone who will be honest and upfront and speak the truth. I hope they will do it not in a harsh and mean way, but I like honesty, don't you? And John is honest. He says, listen, I don't want to confuse you on this subject. There was nothing about Cain that was good. He was of the wicked one. He was of the devil. John 8:44 Jesus speaking of the Pharisees, the religious people of his day, he said, "You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do." And then it says this, he was a what? A murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. What's the context here? Cain, what did he do? He murdered his brother and he said, you are like your father the devil. You are a murderer just like the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So Cain's father was the evil one, not the God of heaven. Secondly, we see that Cain's works were evil. When you are of the evil one, you will desire the things that your father desires. You will desire evil as well. And he desired evil. Now, when we think about Cain and Abel, we first jump almost immediately to this idea that the sin was the murder. But I want to suggest to you that he committed several sins before he ever got to the murder. And the first sin that Cain committed was the sin of envy. You remember that Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to the Lord. The Bible is very clear that Abel offered a more pleasing sacrifice to God, an acceptable sacrifice that he offered in obedience by faith. God had required the sacrifice of an animal, that blood be shed. And when Abel came and offered the sacrifice, he offered that animal and the blood was shed, the blood representing the life of the lamb, and so a life was given, a a price was paid for the covering of sin. But what did Cain do? Cain offered in disobedience the fruits of his own labors. He said, I'm going to bring fruits and vegetables. These are things that I have done. I will offer these to God as a sacrifice on the altar. I will burn these to God. And the Bible says, God was not pleased with his offering. Let me just read a quotation here from MacArthur. I thought this was was really succinct and helpful. Abel brought an animal sacrifice, which the narrative implies was in in obedience to God's command. Later on, when Cain is upset about God not accepting his sacrifice, the Lord says to him, Cain, don't you know that if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted too? So what Abel offered was in obedience to God. 
On the other hand, Cain, and I continue the quotation, listen, in his self-styled religion, ignored the divine requirement and brought the fruit of the ground for his offering. This was in effect Cain saying to God, God, I know you have established a way to come to you, but I want to come to you in my own way. Instead of an animal sacrifice, I'm going to bring what I've done. I've grown these vegetables. I've grown this fruit. This is the labor of my hands. And folks, that is typical of what all the religions of the world offer to people. They say, Climb your way up to God through good works rather than believing God sent his son to be the savior of the world. It's what we do for God that earns salvation rather than what he did for us. That's false religion. And Cain says, I want to come to you on the basis of what I do. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Now when God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's, Cain became upset. His first response, I believe, was envy. Why would God accept his offering and not accept mine? I want the favor of God just like Abel has, but I want it my way. That envy didn't stay there because God didn't change his mind. He confronted Cain and he said to him this, Cain, if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted too. He gave him a chance to go out and to get a lamb and bring it as a sacrifice, and Cain refused to do it. His envy turned into hatred. Have you ever had someone do or say something to you and in the beginning it just really irritated you and then the longer it had went unresolved, the, you know, the, it became anger and, and anger got stronger and, and eventually you might even in moments had feelings of hatred toward a person? The one would hope that's based upon something very serious that a person might have done. But here's the point. Cain looks at Abel... He envies what Abel has that he can't have because he won't come God's way. And he begins to resent his brother who had done the right thing. I'm going to suggest to you, brethren, that the reason that the world hates true Christians is because we want to do the right thing. We want to do what is acceptable in the sight of God. And the Bible says men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Cain hated Abel because Abel had chosen the path of justice. The unjust always feels uncomfortable and even sometimes condemned in the presence of the righteous. I want to tell you, you take a stand for righteousness, some people are going to be uncomfortable with you and some people are going to get angry. It's the way it is. Men love darkness, not wanting their works to be manifested by what they really are. Their works are unjust. They are unrighteous. In John 3, 19 to 21, describing the Lord Jesus coming as the light, it says this, And this is the condemnation, then, that the light has come into the world. 
and men loved darkness rather than the light. Now, Jesus is the light that came into the world. He came to be the light of the world. He came to be light in the midst of men's darkness that he might bring them out of darkness into glorious light. But the Bible says that the world didn't know Jesus and that his own people, the Jews, rejected Jesus. His own people. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Do you realize that most of the evil that is done in our world is done under the cover of darkness? Why? People don't want to be seen when they're doing evil. They want to cover it up. The scripture goes on to say, for everyone practicing evil, not just that does evil, we all do evil, we all sin. But he's talking about someone who lives in an evil way as a form of life. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You see, when we do righteous things, we do it, and we want people to see, not to pat us on the back. We want people to see so that they will know that we're living righteously because we love God. At one point, Jesus said, let your works be seen by man that they may what? Glorify you? No, glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so we are to do the things that we do in honor of the light and those who walk in darkness do so and reject Jesus because they don't want him to point out their sin. Cain's envy turned to hatred and only then did it culminate in the act of murder. Now, the scripture says that Cain slew his brother. That word slew is a very, very strong word. It's the word spazo. It is a vivid term that means to butcher or to slaughter. To butcher or to slaughter. And it refers and implies a violent death. We don't know exactly what happened. All we know is that Cain killed his brother. But whatever it was, it was a violent death. But remember this, in God's eyes, Hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. Let me say it again. Hatred is the moral equivalent of murder. Murder is the ultimate act of hate. It's the culmination of the hate process leading to the death of an individual. It demonstrates the absence of love in the most extreme way. And while the Bible does condemn the act of murder, it also condemns the hatred that leads to it. Because in God's eyes, hatred and murder are the same thing. Now think about that. When you ask people, are you a sinner? Oh yeah, but I, I've never killed anybody. Oh really? Ever hated anyone? 
If you've ever hated anyone, and most people at one time or another, rightly or wrongly, felt feelings of hate toward another person, if you've ever hated anyone, the Bible says in God's eyes, you've committed murder. That's how serious and sobering that is. Now, notice the reality of hate in verse 13. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Believers should not be surprised when the world hates them. Hate is the prime characteristic of their world. By their hatred, the children of the devil have always revealed their true character. Your righteous faith and your righteous lifestyle will anger the lost world. It will. Your righteousness will make the unsaved uncomfortable and then angry and then hateful. Now, I know that not every person is going to treat you that way, but I want you to know through the years I've had some people treat me hatefully because I was a Christian. They mocked me. There were some people who, because I was a Christian, and I remember this particularly in high school, I, I was not a kid to you know, try to start fights. I'd believe me, I'd try to avoid that anytime I possibly could. But I can remember having a group of young men surround me after school one day, about 20 of them, and they put me in the circle and they one would jump in and punch me, and another would jump in and punch me, and they were trying to get me to start a fight. In other words, to fight back. Because then they could say, well, he raised the fist at us, and so that would give them an excuse to beat me up. And when I wouldn't do that, they always used to call me Reverend Leo. Now, you know my first name is Leo. My middle name is Robert, and I've always been called Robbie. So they used to call me Reverend Leo. That was the way they used to tease me, because I was a Christian. And they're yelling at me and saying, oh, Reverend Leo won't fight. Reverend Leo's going to turn the cheek. And they'd be doing all these kinds of things at me. And then this group of young men began spitting on me. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, it's a, it's a small price to pay. But as a teenager, where you're standing among your peers and they are standing around you and they're basically saying you are a worthless person, someone who is only worthy to be spit upon, that's a form of hatred, folks. It's a form of hatred. And it was simply because they knew I was a Christian and there were things that I did not do. I was involved in drama in high school. Used to do five to six different plays every year within the school and also in community theater. It was just something that I loved to do as a young person. And I want to tell you something, folks, that, that we would, after a play was over, we would have a cast party. It would include the teachers that were involved and all of the students and the stagehands and everybody, they'd have a, have a party. The problem was that the art people, the teachers, were people that used drugs and all this kind of stuff. And when they'd get the kids together, out would come the joints of marijuana. And this was at the, the, the school uh, backed function of cast party. And, and you have to understand, I grew up in a home, my parents were not Christians. And they were scared to death that I was going to be so odd and so weird, they forced me to go to things that I didn't want to go. They forced me to go to dances. They forced me to go to proms. My mother would say, you either pick her out or I'm picking her out and I'm picking her up and I'm picking you up and you're going to go to prom. 
That's why I don't want to go to the prom. Number one, when I dance, all I do is jiggle. It's no fun. I didn't want to do it, but they made me do it. My parents made me go to this cast party. Now, one that I'm thinking of in particular. I mean, I walked through the door and almost immediately there was like a corporate sigh went up in the air. Oh no, he's here. He'll call the police. He'll get, and I'm telling you, my teacher's right in the other room. Boy, you're having a gay old time. Wonderful. I want to tell you something. When you're a Christian and you stand up for righteousness, and I mean, I didn't go out and try to get anybody in trouble or do anything, but I wouldn't participate. And they were all shoving their joints at me in my face and wanting me to drink and all the rest. Folks, listen, when you take a stand, the world is going to respond. And kids that I thought really cared about me, that were my friends, when they'd get in with these other kids, would mock me too. And then I'd come and apologize later. Folks, listen. When you stand for righteousness, you'll pay a price. You will pay a price. There is hatred in the world, but listen, here's the point. There can be no hatred in God's family. The opposite is true. There must be love like Christ loved us. And when that does not exist, we bring great shame upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's a sad thing when a church is known for its division more than it's known for its unity. That's a terrible thing. Now, Notice love, the evidence of salvation in verses 14 and 15. He says, we, what's the next word? No. We know. He didn't say, we hope. He didn't say, we think. He says, we know something to be true. We know we have passed from death to life. What does that mean? It means we've been saved. Not talking about physical death. I haven't passed from physical death to physical life yet. That may happen to me one day. I'm hoping that won't happen. I'm hoping I'm going to be transformed at the rapture and I'll never die. I'd rather that. But I may die. And if I do die, I'm going to pass physically from death to life in the resurrection. But that's not what he's talking about here. He says, we know that we have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. In other words, that we have been converted to Christ. That we have been saved. He says, we know. We have passed from death to life. Why? Because we go to church every Sunday. Is that what it says? Now, is there a good thing to go to church? I think it is. I kind of go to every Sunday. You say, of course you do. You're the preacher. But I want to tell you something, folks. We ought to go to church. That's, that's a good thing to do. But you know what? There are a lot of people who go to church don't know the Lord. You're not known as a Christian just because you go into a church building. Doesn't make you a Christian. Doesn't. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life, because we what? Because our hearts have so changed that we now love people we didn't used to love. We used to be part of the world that hated Christians. Now we are a part of the world of Christians who love Christians. And they say, you know what? That's proof you're a Christian. You've changed. You've been transformed. You're a new person. You have a capacity of love now that you did not possess before. 
And we know we're saved because of it. Love within God's family shows that we have been made participants of the very life of God. Now, John is going to do what he does so often. He's going to speak in black and white terms. The apostle John knew nothing of the color gray. It's either all one way or it's all the other way and there was no place for compromise. Notice what he says here. He says, the world hates the righteous love. No middle ground. The world hates or the, and the righteous loves. Secondly, he says here, those who remain in death, in other words, who are still unsaved, prove it by what? By their hatred. Verse 14 says, he who does not love his brother, what? Abides in death. In other words, it doesn't matter how many times you say you're a Christian. It doesn't matter how many times you've prayed the prayer. If you have not been transformed by the grace of God, you are not saved. Now, I didn't say you have to be perfect. Praise God, right? Amen. But what we do have to do is strive toward perfection. And the longer, listen, the longer we live, the less we should sin. The longer we live, the less we should sin because we are progressively being sanctified into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who remain in death prove it by their hatred. Those who have passed from death to life prove it by the love that they have for God and for God's people. Now, if I were to ask you today, do you love God? I'm sure that everyone here would say, yes, I love God. Then God would ask you this question, do you love my people? Do you love other Christians? Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to have trouble with another Christian. Remember Paul and Peter? Remember that situation where Peter did something he shouldn't have done and Paul confronted him and there was a conflict for a while? Remember the struggle between Paul and Barnabas? Remember that when you know, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on the next missionary journey and Paul said no and, and those two men ended up separating and not working together anymore because they could not resolve that disagreement. Now folks, I want to tell you something. Sometimes in human experience, we're going to have difficulty in certain circumstances to get along with others. But what has to happen, listen, what has to happen is not a compromise of principle, but there has to be a humbling of the spirit to be able to disagree with a brother without being disagreeable. And so we love people, even when we disagree with them or they disagree with us. I can look at them and say, this is still my brother and sister in Christ, and I'm going to spend eternity with them. I love them because Christ loved them. I love them because his blood cleansed them just like his blood cleansed me. And one day when we get to heaven, the Lord's going to straighten us all up and get us all fixed. And then we're going to manifest perfectly what he's meant for us to strive for here on the earth. Remember that John compares hatred to murder. 
Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Jesus says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. It's tough. Notice with me next, love must be demonstrated. Love must be demonstrated. Picking up now in verse 16. By this we, what's the next word? We know love. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Can I ask you today, are you loved? Every head ought to nod. Because you are loved. I want to tell you who you're loved by. You're loved by God. You are loved by Jesus. You are loved by the Holy Spirit of God. Now I know there's few other people love you. But I want to tell you something. When all else fails and when everyone else may fail us, He never stops loving us. We know Love because he, and he's referring here to the Lord Jesus, he lay down his life for us. So, love is demonstrated in an illustration which is Christ himself. True love manifests itself in Christ Jesus when he gave his life for the sinful world. Matthew 20, 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and what? To give his life a ransom for many. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When, when I see that phrase, it makes me think of the prodigal son. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You remember when he was coming back to his father? He'd been in the pig pen. Doesn't say anywhere he took a bath. He comes from the pig pen and heads home. And dad's been watching from a long distance away. Sees him in the distance. And what does dad do? Dad says, get that stinking mongrel out of here. Is that what he said? It says he said nothing. He gathered his robes up to his knees. Now, you have to understand that for an older man to do this, to gather his robes up to his knees and to run was considered to be a shameful thing. But he hauled them up and he ran because he didn't want to trip on his robes as he's running. So he runs and he comes to his son and he immediately embraces his son. He didn't say, now let me just see if I can give you a hug or not. No. He embraced him immediately. Began to kiss him. He calls for them to bring a new robe and a ring which symbolized that he was still a son. And, 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 he, and he said, get the fatted calf. I like that part of it. Get that fatted calf out there and let's have a party. But what I love about this, even when we were still sinners, Christ loved us and he died for us. He was willing to identify with you in your most wicked moment. Think of that. What tremendous love. Now here's the point he makes. We must love our brethren in Christ in this same spirit of sacrifice. Wow. 
Wow. I kind of think Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. You know, he's suggesting that for believers in Christ, we should be prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice. Love is not only demonstrated in Christ and his dying for us, it's demonstrated also in action. True love is not shown in words alone, but in deeds, it says in verse 18. He says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Yes, say you love someone, but then show them that you love them. The proof that one is genuine love and is a child of God rests not in your sentiment, but in your deeds. Now, how is love manifested in practical ways? Well, first of all, in the willingness to sacrifice our lives for the brethren. Now, what does it mean to sacrifice your life? Now, many times we think, well, that means to die. Would I be willing to die for another Christian? Well, the Bible says that, you know, some would even be willing to die for a righteous person. They'd be willing to do that, some people. Not everybody. But he says here, we need to be willing to lay down our lives. You know what you need to lay down? You need to lay down your own desires. Because the truth is, your brother may need you when you may wish to be doing something else, but they need you now. So if you're going to show them love, you have to put aside what you desire and consider what they desire. You need to put aside your plans. You need to put aside your interests. You need to even offer up to God first and foremost everything that you possess. Here's the question. Do you have anything you possess today that you'd be unwilling for God to take away? Now think before you answer that question. Anything you can think of that you have that means so much to you that you wouldn't want to lose it? And if God took it away, would you be able to accept that? And what if he took it away from you and gave it to somebody else you know? Would that be still okay? I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind. Uh, I don't have too many... I don't want your word to use, but I don't have too many sacred objects in my life. I tell you, there's not a piece of clothing I wouldn't be willing to throw in the trash. I haven't got anything that's fancy. Um, if you come to my house, and I hope you do, please come to my house. Come visit me. But if you come to my house, you're going to find an awful lot of junk in my house. You look around and you're going to see a bunch of eagles all over the place. Look, there were years ago I used to love eagles. And my family, they're one of these crowds that if you say I like eagles, for the rest of your life you're going to get eagles every gift that they give you. And that's the way it is with my family and we do the same. Mother loves cardinals. So every day it's cardinals, 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 you know. But you know what? There's not a one of those eagles 
that I'd want to hold on to if I could say, oh, man. Even the special ones that were given to me by very special people. If I lost, like if I, my house burned down today and I lost all those eagles, you know what? I wouldn't sit around lamenting the eagles. I'd lament my photo albums. Because I got things in my photo albums that can't be replaced. But you know what? I would survive without my photo albums. Some of you have experienced that. So there's not too much that's sacred to me. Probably the one thing that I would find the hardest to live without is my computer. <laughs> Just because I do everything that I do with that computer. But I want to tell you something, folks. I've had my computer from one day to the next go kablooey and lost everything on it and had not backed it up. That was years ago. I learned the lesson. You see, it really isn't the computer I have as long as I have a one terabyte backup drive. You understand? It's not the computer because I can get another computer, hitch my terabyte to it, and pull all that stuff right back in and I'm back up and running. Hallelujah. Right? But that is such a, think of it, in the light of eternity, how utterly insignificant that is. And for it to be so high on my list of priorities maybe says something about me that we won't talk about anymore because I'm suddenly feeling very embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> by God's grace, listen to this. This is a quotation by MacArthur again. By God's grace, a loving willingness to give up everything to help others permeates the attitudes of believers and shines forth in their lives. A willingness to give up everything to help others permeates their attitudes and shines forth in their lives. And we don't have time to go to this passage, but I encourage you to do it. It's mentioned there in your notes. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 9. You know, we go to 2 Corinthians 9 when we want to, pastors, when we want to preach on giving. Because, right, it gives the stipulations in, under the New Testament economy about giving. And, you know, tithing is not taught in the New Testament. Tithing is certainly a method that you can use if you choose to do that. But I believe today God is saying, I don't want to limit you to the tithe. I want to limit you only by your faith. And so there are people today, instead of just saying, well, I keep the law and I give my tenth, and say, I'm going to trust God for 11%. I'm going to trust God for 12%. And then there are other people who have absolute legitimate right to say, I'm going to give 1% or 2%. That's between you and God. And as you give, you will prosper. And as you, if you give sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you, if, you, if you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. That's what this passage teaches. God loves what kind of a giver? Cheerful, Cheerful giver. We cite chapter 9 for all of that. But you know what the context of it is? If you begin chapter 9, he's not talking about giving your offerings on Sunday in church for the upkeep of the church. He was talking about taking up a special offering for poor believers in other places. <coughs> kind of like our deacons fund offering. And when he talks about that, helping people in need, he then goes on to lay out all the principles of giving. Not just giving to local church. Folks, listen, if you've given to the local church, thank you. 
We're so grateful. We're so appreciative. Your offerings keep the church moving forward. But brethren, don't limit yourself just to the church. There are brothers and sisters that are not connected to the ministry we have as a church, but are part of our fellowship who have needs and we need to be ready to give over and above to people in need. Why? It's a manifestation of love. And you say, are you sure? Read on. Verse 17, For whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now just a couple of thoughts here. Number one, he's not talking to you if you have nothing to give. You know, sometimes people have needs and you literally have no ability to help them. God doesn't expect you to do what he doesn't enable you to do. However, most of us, while we usually can't do everything a person needs, we can do something. And I think what he's saying, if you see a brother or sister in need, because I got a feeling if they're in need today, they're probably going to be in need tomorrow too. So it may be one brother that helps them today, and it'll be another brother that helps them tomorrow. And then when it's your turn and you're in need, then the brother comes along and helps you. That's the way this is supposed to work. And he says, listen, if you know of the need and have the ability to help this person, and you notice what he says, shut up your heart from that brother. Now you say, I don't care if he has a need or not. I'm not going to give him any of my money. I'm not going to give him any of my food. You know, sometimes we think we just got to, you know, you got to, oh, they are always wanting to get into my wallet. I want to tell you something, folks. You got an awful lot to offer that won't come out of your wallet. Most of us, not everybody, but most of us have stuff in the freezer. Do we or do we not? Even if it's just one of them little ones with your refrigerator. We all have stuff in the freezer. Most of us shop and buy food ahead for a period of time. Don't we do that, most of us? I want to suggest to you, brethren, someone may be in need, and what God may just want you to do is to go to your freezer and take out one item and take it to him and say, here's some meat that can be a basis for a meal for you, for your family. Then provide everything, but this is what I can do. This is something I have. It's already in my freezer. I don't have to spend extra money. I don't have to go to the store. I take something I've got, and I take it to them. And I want to tell you something, folks. If they don't want what comes out of your freezer, that's a pretty ungrateful person that's hungry. Wouldn't you say? But you and I can't give on whether people are grateful or not. We have to do it because we love Christ. He says, look, don't look at a brother or a sister and close your heart off to them. Well, I don't know if they're handling their money just right. So I'm not going to give them more money to waste. You know what? You know what? You will not answer to God for what they do with their money. They will. And because a mom and a dad don't use their money properly and I see their children not eating, I will give them the food because I want to feed their children. 
Why? Because they have a need. And it may be they wasted. Anyone here ever wasted any of your money? Think about the junk you bought and put on a credit card. I know some of you don't. Some of you saints from above, you know, I understand. That's all great. Most of us have credit cards. And I want to tell you, sometimes the only thing that we need to do is to see something. And lust takes over and we have it in our car and are headed home. And we didn't, number one, need it. And number two, we probably couldn't afford it. But we got it anyway. There's not a person here that hasn't one time or another at some level wasted some of your money. Listen, if God only gave to you because you never ever wasted anything, wouldn't you be in trouble? My point is simply this. When you see a brother, a true brother, a real Christian in need, do not shut your heart to that brother. Why? He says, because if you do, you're loving in word, but you are not loving in deed. And if you are not loving in deed, in the eyes of God, you're not loving at all. Now that's sobering. He says, if you're a real Christian, you're going to love other Christians. And you are going to sacrifice for other Christians. You're going to, when someone has a need to the best of your ability, it may be a tiny bit that you can do, but you do it from your heart. And maybe you can meet the whole need. Praise God if you can do that. Not everybody can do that. Most can't do that. But what I want you to understand is what you can do, you are obligated before God to do for your brother. Because it's proof of love for God and it's proof of your salvation. And you let God concern himself with the results. Do we live righteously? We don't do it perfectly. But are you doing better now than you used to do? Hmm. Are you making progress? Are you sinning less now than you used to? You say, well, I'm sinning less in some areas. Now, I'm, now I've started up a new bunch of stuff, yeah? Well, the Lord keeps working on new things in our lives, right? But why is he doing that? Because he keeps the cleaning process going on. And not only are you righteous as a practice, as a way of life, but do you love brethren enough to sacrifice for them? Even when it may cost you and leave you in need? I want to tell you something, you can't outgive God. You know that, don't you? You can't outgive God. He will do for you amazing things when you seek to humbly serve others. He says, You take care of my kids, I'll take care of you. That ought to be our attitude. Let's just pray. Father, we've been talking today about two of the evidences of true salvation. One of them is that we seek to live a righteous life as a way of life. We seek to sin less, to be righteous more, to abhor evil, and to love that which is good. But Lord, we also demonstrate that we have experienced the love of Christ who sacrificed everything for us and we prove that by sacrificing everything for one another.
And we do it, Lord, because we don't shut our hearts to one another. We open our hearts because, Lord, one thing is true. If we are truly believers in Christ, we're part of a family that will never cease to exist. And one day in eternity, Lord, we're going to be able to understand a lot of things we don't understand now. One of the things we will understand in eternity is the blessing of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Bless your word to our hearts, Lord. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope you've enjoyed this sermon today and tune in next week for another sermon in from this passage. If you'd like to contact us, send us an email and we will get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day.